attention, attention all personnel, it's MASHCAST! Hello, and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates, one episode at a time, the greatest TV series of all time, CBS's MASH, which ran from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Corporal Captain Rob Kelly, and joining us this week in the VIP tent is... Uh, no one, actually. Uh, we had a guest lined up for this episode, but unfortunately, due to some last-minute scheduling snafus, uh, they weren't able to join me here on MASHCAST, and I was not able to get a replacement in time uh, But when I had to record this. Uh, those of you that are podcasters, especially those of you that do podcasting index shows, know the particular pain of scheduling index shows, because obviously you can't jump around in case your schedule changes. So I thought about maybe you know prolonging MASHCAST, giving it a couple extra weeks off, but I decided, well, you know what, I, I can talk about MASH. I've been talking about MASH my whole life. So this one will be a bit of an experiment, and that's just going to be me. Please be kind in the comments on fireandwaterpodcast.com, and I promise uh, next week's episode uh, we will have a guest back. So anyway, so this one is just going to be me talking about Season 1, Episode 9, Henry, Please Come Home, original air date, November 19th, 1972, written by Lawrence Marks and directed by William Weard. In the OR, there's a dust-up when Frank is rude to nurse Ginger Bayless, and Hawkeye and Trapper call him out on it in front of the rest of the staff. After surgery, Frank insists Ginger be formally reprimanded on account of a suture, Henry asks, and Hawkeye and Trapper yell at him all over again. Henry calms everything down but warns them that they have to try and get along with Frank in case, someday... Henry isn't there to fix everything. Not too long after, General Hammond arrives to bestow a commendation, fourth class, on Henry, now that the 477 has achieved a 90% efficiency rating, the highest of any MASH unit in Korea. Along with the commendation, Henry is being transferred to Tokyo, where he'll be teaching. Hawkeye, Trapper, and Radar are stunned, and even more stunned when they realize that Frank Burns is now in charge. Under the command of Frank Burns, the place becomes a nightmare. He changes everyone's duties and schedules, shuts down the doctor still, and insists on other army formalities. Morning Reveille, calisthenics, the whole bit. This forces Hawkeye, Trapper, Radar, Spearchucker, Ugly John, Ho-John, and even Boone to try and figure out what to do with Frank. Suggestions like having him transferred, getting him on the operating table, even pushing him in front of a moving chopper blade are all offered. But Hawkeye realizes the answer is simple. Henry. They need Henry back. Hawkeye and Trapper take a trip to Tokyo to hang out with him, who is enjoying himself immensely. They try and guilt him into coming back, but he won't do it. Why would he? Part of their plan that works is when they have Radar fake a serious illness, something they can't quite diagnose. Henry is concerned enough to come back to the 477 to help out, and his arrival is less than welcomed by Frank. After a cursory examination, Henry suggests exploratory surgery on Radar, which catches everyone by surprise. As they try and talk him out of it, Frank and Henry get into an argument. In a careless moment, Fred Radar offers to place a call to General Hammond for Henry, leaping out of bed in the process. The whole sham now revealed, Henry demands to know what's going on. Hawkeye admits it was all a plan to get Henry back and out of the hands of Frank Burns. Henry, against all his better judgment, agrees to return to commanding to the 477th. Later, Henry interrupts a poker game in the swamp. He tells everyone that things are going to be stricter, more serious from now on. But when he accepts the martini offered him and pulls up a chair at the poker table, everyone can see things are back to normal. So first thing you think of, uh, at least when you're watching this episode, is it is clearly one of the shows that were uh, 
shown out of order. This episode uh, feels very much like the first episode, I mean, not uh, most obviously, in that it has G. Wood back as General Hammond, even though we have already seen a couple different generals at this point uh, in command of the 477th. So the fact that General Hammond is back tells me that this episode was probably filmed very early in the rotation and then shown out of order. Um, in fact, the book... Uh, the Complete Book of MASH by Susie Coulter, which was one of my favorite books growing up because it was like a deep dive into the show, lists uh, the MASH shows in the order they were filmed um, and lists this one as the second episode. And that makes a lot of sense. You can see, It feels very much like the pilot. It looks like the pilot, and there are some other similarities to the pilot that we'll get to. So, uh, like I said, this one is probably filmed uh, you know, filmed second, but then shown out of order. It's kind of a weird idea to make the second episode of the show featuring a character who is going to get shipped out. I mean, you kind of know, well, didn't the show just start? Henry's already getting shipped out, but that uh, makes for good drama, I guess. MASH as a series was never all that concerned with episode-to-episode continuity, uh, but there are moments when CBS's habit of showing the shows wildly out of order rarely becomes apparent, because here we've got Spirit Chucker and Ugly John returning after being gone in several episodes, uh, not to mention uh, the character of Boone. I mean, that's, again, that's one of the things that makes the show, uh, this particular episode, feel like the movie, in that Hawkeye and Trapper have like a whole gang. The scene where they are trying to decide what to do with Frank really feels like the movie because you've got Hawkeye, you've got Trapper, you've got Ugly John, Spirit Chucker, Radar, and Boone in this kind of mass group walking around. And obviously over the course of the first like half season or even the first third of the season, uh, the producers, Gene Reynolds and Larry Gilbert, realized you didn't need all these hangers on. You really pretty much could just get away with Hawkeye, Trapper, and Radar uh, for the most part. But it's a funny episode. I mean, it's a, it's a good, you know, it's another caper show where Hawkeye and Trapper have to do something sort of underhanded, which is, of course, fooling Henry. But they're doing it for the right reasons, uh, because they need Henry back. It is kind of curious that they thought they could run the 477th uh, with one less doctor. I mean, we've already established that the 477th is incredibly busy. And, you know, they're busy with four doctors, and somehow they're going to get away with just having three doctors, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, again, you just have to kind of... Uh, go with it. There are some interesting you know, little bits here and there, of course, in the scene where Frank angrily confronts Henry about reprimanding Ginger Bayless. Hawkeye says, you're kidding, Doctor. I only call you that because it always gets a laugh. And if you're watching these episodes with the laugh track, that's exactly the moment the laugh track kicks in, thereby delivering the exact thing that Hawkeye just mentioned, like as if there are bleachers of people at the 477 watching all this. It's kind of a Dada-esque moment uh, for the show. The actor playing um, Boone is Robert Gooden. Uh, he appeared in a handful of episodes of MASH. He would appear in one more after this. He was in two films, uh, two classics. I put that in air quotes. Night of the Lepus, about the killer bunny rabbits, and Maximum Overdrive. So he had quite the horror career his IMDb uh, list. I find it interesting that when we see uh, Frank having taken over the 477th and he's talking to Radar about all the gold bricking that's going on, Radar is like really snippy with Frank. Um, I think he refers to, uh, we're going to get this place in ship shape, and, and Radar's like, are you sure in the right branch of the service, sir? Which is like, that's so, like, an unradar thing to do, is to be snippy with Frank. And then another detail, which, like, it doesn't make any sense, but again, you just have to go with it, is when Frank hands Radar a piece of paper, and he says, here's tomorrow's schedule, see that it's posted, and it's like, I really think that for the 477 to run correctly, everyone would have to know their assignments before they get up in the morning, like, I don't think everybody gets, it's not like uh, you're finding out uh, in the, 
gym where you've been scheduled uh, for what kickball team? You know, I think you have to kind of like know tomorrow morning, where do I have to be? Maybe that's when I need to go to sleep. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that, that Frank is doing the schedule day by day. But uh, maybe that's suggesting that Frank is just a terrible commander and he doesn't care what the, uh, you know, how well the place really operates. As we know, Frank is a stickler for looking right and appearing right, but not actually doing right. So maybe that could be what it is. Although the idea that he's staying up in the middle of the night doing all this work, again, it seems kind of like a little anti-Frank, because we know that Frank is really lazy uh, as well. We find that out later on uh, in the show. Um, There's that scene where Frank confiscates the still, uh, which is funny because he comes in, and I love the bit where Trapper's got the fly swatter, and he's waving it in front of the MP, and he goes, you better be careful, buddy. This thing could go off. I just like the kind of weirdness of of that. There is a moment at the end where they you know, they tell the MP, basically, we're not going to give up the still, and then the MP pulls, pulls a gun, and Hawkeye has that line about, uh, they got the drop on his text, and he does the, the sort of southern twang. Like Again, I know you just have to kind of go with it, but it like... Do they really think the MP is going to shoot them? Like, are you really going... Is the MP really... It's acceptable for the MP to fire upon a member of the military, a fellow member of the military, just because they won't give up the still? I mean, I think I'd risk it at that point. I'd be like, go ahead, shoot me. Yeah, I'm not going to hand over the still. But again, you kind of have to sort of uh, go with it. I, I mentioned before the, the scene where all the characters are deciding what to do with Frank about how to get rid of him. And I love that Boone suggests, push him in front of a chopper with the blades going. Like, that is, that's cold. That's pretty harsh. And, and you know, I mean, obviously they're not serious about it, but it's just sort of funny that they would say that about, how do we get rid of Frank Birdsell? We could just behead him. That would be a good idea. And then Hawkeye has a good reaction to that. Um, another moment, uh, or another bunch of scenes that to me suggest that the show, you know, was filmed, you know, right after the pilot or, or shortly thereafter, is first of all, we see Hawkeye in his little uh, sun hat, which is something that he got rid of pretty early on, but he's wearing in the in the first episode and he's wearing in the second. And also there are a lot of um, like standing sets. In this episode, uh, Hawkeye and Trapper go to Tokyo. How they got permission to go to Tokyo under Frank, I don't know. I mean, we know that Radar has passes. But still, I mean, how do you run? You know, how do you run the hospital with one doctor left? But anyway, they go to Tokyo and we see this this set of where there's like a pool scene where they're like in a in a uh, in a whirlpool and stuff like that, and there are uh, some standing sets we see or like some Tokyo sets in the pilot as well, and we, there's even a flashback in the pilot, which is something Mash would never do after that, and that makes me think that again this was probably right after uh, well it wasn't right after but it was a little after the movie 20th Century Fox probably had all these sets built for various TV shows that they were producing, probably a lot of the movies they were making back then. Studios were cranking out hundreds of movies in a year. Uh, they were still doing, I think, you know, kind of B-level movies that were part of double bills and stuff, little kind of cheap little things. So there probably were lots of sets that were built to be used for Lots of different uh, TV shows, lots of different movies, lots of other, probably uh, maybe even some variety shows and things like that. So they had these things that they they didn't need to be built originally for the show. I would imagine MASH didn't have the budget to keep building new sets for one episode never to be seen again. But by the fact that we see a Tokyo set uh, in two successive episodes tell me that you know this was something they had on the Fox lot and they could go over and, and use these. And again, you know, it's nice. Again, it gives the show... Some variety, some visual variety. And maybe early on, uh, the producers didn't realize that they could set the whole show at the Swamp. Maybe they thought, or not the Swamp, excuse me, the 47th, is that it would feel too limited. But of course, realize 
after a while, they realized that, yes, the, the, the 477 was an interesting enough place visually and tonally that you could do a whole show and never leave it. And, it, you know, that would be fine. They didn't have to go to Tokyo every every episode. I do find it interesting. You know, I've mentioned previously that the show seems kind of uncertain as to how much of part of the gang Spear Chucker is because he lives in the swamp. He's part of the gang, but yet Hawkeye and Trapper seem to be kind of the first among equals sort of thing. And there's a moment later on where after the jig is up and Henry realizes that he's been conned and he sees the doctors walking away from him and he yells out, Pierce, McIntyre, Jones, someone explain, somebody explain to me what's going on. And he puts, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I feel like McLean Stevenson puts just the slightest bit of pause between saying McIntyre and Jones. He says, Pierce McIntyre, very fast. And then he did just a slight pause. And then he says, Jones, as if the actor himself isn't sure. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the line was in the script to say all three names. I'm sure that McLean Stevenson didn't ad-lib that. But it almost feels like the show itself is uncertain. It's like, are there three doctors here? Or is the gang, is the Swamp Gang three doctors or is it two doctors? We don't seem to really know. And again, there's just that brief line where, a brief pause where McLean Stevenson seems to indicate that the Jones is like kind of like not really part of the gang. And of course, Spear Chucker would not even be written out of the show. He would just disappear. And then later on in MASH history, he would just be completely forgotten. He would never be mentioned again as if he... He was never at the 477. So, In terms of behind the scenes, uh, William Weard, who directed this episode, he directed six episodes of MASH, including uh, Sometimes You Hear the Bullet, uh, the classic, and Kim from season two, which is another great episode. He did lots of TV. He did the TV movie Ski Lift to Death, which... Uh, they covered over on the Made for TV Mayhem podcast starring my pal Amanda Reyes and Daniel Budnick. That's a really fun show. If the, they talk all about the art of TV movies and they covered Ski Lift to Death not that long ago. Uh, he also directed the movie Tom Horn. He has one feature film to his credit, the Steve McQueen pseudo-Western Tom Horn. I was sort of fascinated at how TV guys can sort of like end up directing one movie. They, they get into feature films and then never do another one after that. You know, like, how did he manage to get Tom Horn back when, if you were a TV guy, you were a TV guy and you didn't cross over much, but he managed to get Tom, Tom Horn made. Uh, I mentioned this episode was written by Lawrence Marks, uh, who wrote 21 episodes. He wrote a lot of great episodes for the first three years of MASH. These are his last credits. He did a bunch of TV before MASH, but these are, this is pretty much it for him. And then he died in 1993. So he lived on for another 20 years after finishing up with MASH. I'm not sure, you know, like what happened to him or why he didn't write anything else for 20 more years. But uh, nevertheless, these are pretty much the last things uh, he ever worked on. Uh, in terms of uh, my favorite line, it's probably, I got to give it actually to Ugly John, uh, John Orchard, uh, who again would be soon written off the show. Uh, but when they are all uh, deciding what to do with Frank, uh, he says, uh, you know, well, we get him on, the, we tell him he's got a hot appendix, get him on the operating table, I'll give him the gas, and, uh, and uh, that's it. And they're like, that's it. And they said, they said, you're not very imaginative, Ugly John. And he says, huh, never claimed to be. And the, there's just something about the way John Orchard delivers that line so matter-of-factly. Like, he's just never claimed to be. Like, I love that. Like, you, they mean it as an insult. And he's just sort of like, well, I'm not a clever guy. It's just, hey, you know, we can knock him out and he'll never wake up again. Which, of course, was sort of 
the plot of two two later episodes of MASH, White Gold and Preventative Medicine. Uh, both tackled that topic very different ways, but I love how in the early days, Hawkeye and Trapper are kind of loose with the whole, well, you know, well, we could just put Frank on the table and have him never wake up. We could just murder him. You know, what's the problem there? Uh, so that's my, kind of my favorite line. And I love, just love, on paper, it's not that funny. Never claimed to be, but the way John Orchard gives it a sort of shruggy delivery, I love it. And then the other thing I think I want to mention is there's this kind of a nice moment. It's the it's the the button scene. It's after the before the uh, end credits where Henry tries to uh, give some discipline, and of course it doesn't really work. Uh, and he says, you know, you guys all have to toe the line. And, uh, you know, they're like, yeah, sure, Henry. And then he says, you know, do you want to drink, big boy? And he says, guys, I just told you. And then he gives it up. Um, he finally decides, you know, like, oh, okay. And he, he, you know, sits down at the table and deals and is dealt in. He puts his arm around Gary Berghoff. He puts his arm around Radar, which I think is really sweet. It's like they had such a father-son relationship, and I like that that's just – you know, not mentioned. It's just like a, it's a character beat. That's something that Henry would do with Radar. You know, of course he would do that because that's the relationship they have. But I like that they don't call attention to it. And I think, the, you know, the first half dozen times I watched this episode, I never noticed that. And then, then I caught it and just thought it was really sweet that he has that relationship with Radar. It's, it's really, really nice. So um, overall, I would say Henry, Please Come Home is a, is a fun episode. Again, it's another, another caper. Uh, this first half season, Hawkeye and Trapper were pulling lots of capers. Uh, Leslie uh, Micklejohn gets kind of a nice – Linda Micklejohn, I'm sorry, playing, playing uh, Lieutenant Leslie Scorch. She gets probably the biggest part she's ever going to get where she's the one who is partly used to get Henry back to the 477th. They established that Leslie is kind of Henry's main girlfriend. I mean he would cheat on his wife pretty indiscriminately the 477, but in the early days – she was his sort of regular girlfriend. So this is probably the most line she would ever get uh, in any of the um, episodes. But it's a good, it's a fun show. It's a fun show. It feels weird that it's so out of order and that, again, all the, the side characters are given such prominence after a couple straight where they're not really in it. But, you know, that's just the vagaries of uh, television production, I guess. So, yeah, it is a, it's a pretty fun show. It's a pretty, pretty fun show. Um, it's nice to see, you know, Henry makes a pretty big sacrifice. You know, I mean, who wouldn't, who would give up a gig in Tokyo as opposed to being at the 477th? It is something that later on they would hint at that, that both Hawkeye and Trapper, um, excuse me, that both Hawkeye and Henry would find rewarding being at the 477th and that they would realize that they were getting years of experience in doctoring, years of being challenged as a doctor crammed into a very short period of time. And that was something that I guess that appeared to appealed to both of them. I think later on in the third season episode, OR, uh, Henry Blake talks about that all the medicine he does at home is, is like cookbook medicine. It's your textbook medicine. It's easy. Uh, but here, you know, it's a challenge. And so they were appealing to his ego and appealing to his, his doctor's ego that he wants to, if he's going to be in Korea or he's going to be serving, he wants to do something valuable. And, uh, you know, he, that's how they managed to get him back. Of course, knowing what eventually happens to Henry, you know, makes it sort of sad that had he stayed in Tokyo, maybe that he would have ended up with a different fate, but uh, we'll never know. And one other thing I want to mention is when we see Radar in bed, just before Henry arrives again, he's reading a comic book and he's reading Captain Savage, the Marvel comic book series from the late sixties. So much like, uh, the issue of the Avengers that Radar reads in a fourth season episode, uh, he, uh, 
he uh, radar managed to get comic books uh, that did not exist at the time. And obviously, I'm always weirded out by it's such a weird prop to get because where I mean those the, these shows were produced in the mid 70s, early to mid 70s, and the comic books that radar had were from the late 60s. So where did they get those from? They didn't send some PA to drive to the nearest newsstand and pick them up. So where did they get them? I guess they had them in the in the 20th Century Fox prop department, and maybe they were just old props, and whoever picked them up didn't know enough about comic books to know, hey, these aren't period appropriate. Or maybe they just simply didn't care. But I always thought it was sort of funny that you would you could imagine that the mistake that would have been made is that Radar would be reading a comic book from 1972, 73, 74, 75, not from 1968, but, but somehow he is. But uh, as again, we, we hear in later episodes, MASH would get movies that didn't weren't released during the Korean War. Like, they get Godzilla later on. So whoever delivered the entertainment to the 477 was really, really ahead of ahead of schedule. So uh, that's pretty much going to be it for Henry, Please Come Home. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun show. It's a good show. It's great to see Henry, you know, be needed. The reveal of it where Radar forgets himself is a great way to end the the moment. And, you know, it's always good. It's always to see a reminder that uh, it's always nice to see uh, Frank Burns get put in his place because he deserves to be put in his place every single episode. So uh, that's it for um, Henry, please come home. So I think that's pretty much going to do it uh, for this episode recap. Before I sign off, I do want to mention a couple of things, the, the greater MASH universe that's taken place uh, since we recorded the last episode. Of course, we now know MASH is in streaming over on Hulu. And we've been catching, me and Darlene Tracy have been catching up on MASH episodes. We've been watching them just in order. And I finally noticed that um, the episodes where it was an hour-long show cut into two shows, Welcome to Korea, Bug Out, and uh, there'll be some later on that we'll get to. But I noticed with Bug Out, uh, there were scenes missing. Uh, there are, when the show is cut into two half hours, presumably you need to trim them a little uh, to fit in d- double sets of credits, both uh, fore and aft. And so they have to cut the shows down. And so there are little bits and pieces of scenes from Bug Out missing. I didn't notice anything missing from Welcome to Korea. There must be something. But Bug Out, I noticed immediately there were just lines here and there that are missing. Um, we can probably should talk about it when we get to Bug Out uh, in you know, several years from now. But like, there's the scene in Bug Out where... Potter is looking for a new lo- a location for the new MASH, and he talks about how hungry he is, and he's like, I'd even eat one of Radar's armpit sandwiches, I'm so hungry. And the chopper pilot says, oh, here here you go, and he picks up a bunch of bananas that he's keeping in his in his uh, cockpit, and it's like a giant, it's a comically sized, huge amount of bananas, like 30 bananas hanging off, and, and Potter laughs, he says, how did we even get off the ground? That whole scene is cut. You don't see that in the Hulu version. Uh, he just talks about how hungry he is, and then they cut to something else. And there's also another scene where um, Hawkeye is about to operate on the spinal cord case, and he snaps at Hot Lips for not putting the x-ray in the right spot, and then he snaps at BJ. And then he realizes that he's super tense because he realizes he's about to operate on a, a spinal case when they know that they may have to bug out. The The, the line where he chastises Margaret is cut. So uh, that's a little disappointing that the Hulu versions aren't the sort of complete and uncut. But presumably um, they get the episodes from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment. Uh, they have nothing to do with what the episodes actually are. And, and I guess these are the syndicated versions or something. I don't know. They seem to be – I don't know. They're, they're not cut to the ver- – they're not cut like the syndicated versions that I saw, which have like you know entire like four or five minutes missing. But uh, it's weird. Um, so they're not, they're not complete and uncut, which is unfortunate because if you're going to – put them on 
streaming. They should be uncut. You know, come on. Something else that's happened uh, since we did the last episode is Alan Alda, who has a podcast. He has a podcast. He's like 83 years old. He's like my dad's age, but he's got a podcast. Uh, revealed that he has been, he was diagnosed several years ago with Parkinson's. And of course, as we all know, Parkinson's, very serious disease. Michael J. Fox, probably one of the most famous people to have it. Um, one of my relatives, my beloved Uncle Walt, um, had Parkinson's later on in his life. And I remembered uh, him being, you know, watching as it, as it really made him very difficult to understand and made him shake and, and stuff like that. And it was very unfortunate uh, to watch because I'm sure it was suffered a lot. And I think that's what eventually, uh, unfortunately, killed him uh, when he died. I think he died in, when he was in the, his early 80s. Uh, but uh, but Alan Alda seems one of these guys who's like eternally young. I mean, I think the day that he announced that he has Parkinson's, he also posted a video of himself juggling. And he talks about that he boxes for for exercise. So the man is just young at heart. He's like the definition of young at heart. And I am fully confident that uh, the Parkinson's will barely slow Alan Alda down because that seems to be who Alan Alda is. So we here at MASHCAST wish him all the best, of course. Uh, he is, you know, Hawkeye Pierce is one of my childhood heroes. And he is Hawkeye Pierce. The two are interchangeable. And so, again, we wish him all the luck in the world and hope that uh, he does as well as he can with uh, with with uh, the Parkinson. So again, Alan Alda, we, we wish you all the best. And then one final thing I wanted to mention is uh, over on Twitter, MASH477cast uh, over on Twitter, friend of the pod, Sean Ross, who will be a guest on the show very soon, uh, mentioned to me a show called Rollout uh, and asked me if I'd heard of the show. I'd never heard of the show. It was created by Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds. It only ran for 12 episodes, one season from 1973 to 1974. The description of it on IMDb is, is, is this. In an attempt to cash in on the success of MASH, this rarely funny sitcom was stuck into the lineup. Loosely based on the film Red Ball Express from 1952, and set during World War II, Rollout attempted to comment on race relations the way MASH was commenting on Korea. Written by C. Barnes. I'm guessing Mr. Barnes. Not a fan of Rollout. I, again, I've never heard of this show. Uh, I'm kind of amazed uh, that I've never heard of it. I mean, I've done a lot of research on MASH and like their accompanying projects, but this thing just eluded me. It lists the cast... Uh, here and a bunch of the people listed in appearing in several of the episodes have MASH connections. It's got uh, one of the regulars was Hilly Hicks, who appeared on two different episodes of MASH. Ed Bagley Jr., of course, everybody knows who Ed Bagley Jr. is, appeared on an episode of MASH. And Teddy Wilson uh, appeared in uh, Rollout. He was played the chopper pilot in uh, The General Flipped at Dawn, which also starred Harry Morgan. So that had a lot of it has a lot of MASH connections aside of uh, it being from Larry Gilbert and Gene Reynolds and set during a wartime. So I've never heard of this show. According to the comments on IMDb, the show was uh, sold to the BET network and ran in the 90s at some point, but then it disappeared. It's never, of course, been on, put on streaming. It's, oh, it's one of those shows that, um, to borrow a phrase from Zaki Hassan, who has been on the show, just fell down the memory hole. So I'm guessing a show that only ran for 12 episodes in the, mid, in the early 70s is not something that you know, has a lot of market value. But man, I would kill to see it. I would love to just see how similar to MASH you know, it is in tone. And it also also featured in the cast is uh, Garrett Morris, pre-Saturday Live. So that's kind of amazing. It's uh, it's you know kind of a storied cast, considering the show was sort of 
completely disappeared now. But I really appreciate Sean Ross bringing it to my attention. I'd love to find it. And maybe if I ever do get a chance to see an episode, we can do like a special show on rollout. That sounds uh, really fascinating. And I kind of want to see this movie Red Ball Express now. I've never heard of that either. So thank you very much, Sean Ross, for, for pointing it out to me. So uh, I guess that is going to do it for this episode of the MASHcast. Um, I hope uh, me talking by myself uh, wasn't too much of, uh, wasn't too boring. Uh, I know that the guests are, are, are what everybody comes for. It's why I do the shows to talk to guests about MASH. But again, uh, those of you who do podcasting know that sometimes scheduling just doesn't work out. So uh, again, please be kind over on the comments, uh, which you can uh, which you can leave over at fireandwaterpodcast.com. There you can find back episodes of the show. And uh, again, follow us on Twitter at mash4077cast. And uh, I guess that is going to do it. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks, I promise, with a guest talking about the next episode. And until then, that is all. obvious cliches, all right? I mean, I think we need something really basic. Hey, why don't we push him in front of a chopper with blades going? That's basic enough. Yeah, <laughs> we haven't had a good decapitation in a long time.